Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. It's been just over three years since the murder of George Floyd inspired worldwide protests and a reckoning about the state of racism in America. But what's happened since? Kiera Butler, the host of Generation Rising on Rhode Island PBS, offers a framework for moving forward in her new book, Terms and Conditions. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Kiera Butler, the host of Generation Rising on Rhode Island PBS and the author of a new book, Terms and Conditions. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. We recently marked the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder at the hands of Minneapolis police that prompted Mm -hmm. protests around the world. Um, But what's changed since then? And what more do you think needs to change? Honestly, I don't think anything has changed since then, except that the inequities that have been happening within the United States have been amplified. I think a lot of companies and organizations spoke out and took a stance against racism during that time. But what we found now in 2020, what year is this, three? Three. (laughs) Yeah, is that a lot of that was performative activism. Hmm. They put a lot of like words on papers and they released a lot of statements into the media. They hired a lot of chief diversity officers and equity officers, but those people are now getting fired. And the money that was given to organizations doing racial equity work, that money has dried up. Um, My company, Diversity Talks, we've seen that. Yeah, just tell us what Diversity Talks does. So we train 9th through 12th grade students to facilitate anti-racism training for their teachers and their administrators. And so instead of like an adult giving you professional development, they're actually hearing from the voices of the students that are in the classrooms and that are being impacted by the curriculum, by their teachers, by their administrators, by the education system as a whole. Well, that's fascinating. Why the the youth? Why, Why? 
I elevate them to that role? Yes. So there's this thing called the banking system where you feel that you're an expert as a teacher um, and that students are empty vessels and you're just pouring into them because you have all the wealth of knowledge. You're the expert and you have something to give. Right. And that's not true at all. We can be learners even as adults, even as experts, even me with a doctorate, like I'm able to learn from someone. And in Rhode Island, there's about 80% of the teachers are white, I would say. Whereas the student population, and don't quote me on these numbers, is about 90% students of color. And so there's a disconnect in the classroom in terms of race and in terms of what's being taught. And so why not amplify the voices and the experiences of the students, but also shift that power dynamic so that the students are the experts of their own experiences and they're the ones leading the conversation. I know diversifying the teaching core in Providence has been a huge issue. Is is any progress being made on that front? I think diversifying it, yes, there has been progress. Like I said earlier, people rush to hire black people or they rush to hire chief diversity officers or equity officers. But what we're seeing is a retention problem. Hmm. Like just because you hire me, do I actually belong here? Do you see me? Do you understand why my hair looks the way it looks? Do you understand why I dress the way I dress or why I talk the way that I talk? So even if you are bringing in people of color or black people, what space are you creating that makes me know that I belong, but then everyone else know from the outside looking in that this is a safe space for me? I see that you have a new book out titled Terms and Conditions, The Fine Print to an Anti-Racist Society. Yes. Tell us why you wrote that book. Ah. I've been writing that book in my mind for maybe three or four years now. Um, And I was actually able to take everything out of my brain and put it onto paper. One of the reasons I wrote the book is really about the name, the terms and the conditions and the fine print and thinking about the systems and structures within the United States. We all contribute to white supremacy in some way, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. And so That is the fine print. Like, did we agree to the terms and the conditions of the U.S. when it comes to racism? How did we actively contribute to these systems? And did we take a look at the fine print and read it for ourselves? I know for an iPhone, I don't look at the terms and conditions at all. I just check it. I accept all the cookies when I'm going on a website. (laughs) And I think that that is what we're doing when we're talking about systems of oppression and how they exist. Early in the book, you summarize what it means to live in an anti-racist society. Tell us what that is. It's a liberating society um, that sees everyone for who they are, where they are in their journeys, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, their sexual orientation, all of the identities that they bring. But it's also that accountability piece. So the book is broken down into four chapters, power, empathy, relationships, and mindset. Perm, yes. Yes, like the relaxer. Um, (laughs) I developed that framework in 2019 as a part of my doctoral studies because I realized that we weren't really talking about cultural competency and what that journey is and where people can fall on the cultural competence continuum. But then we're also not talking about it within those dimensions of like power dynamics. And so it's really taking a look at yourself 
within those four dimensions and assessing where you are and then improving your behavior based on that. And so for power dynamics in particular, it's about elevating the experiences of marginalized populations and relinquishing your own power because we all have privileges. And so how are we using our privileges to elevate other people? Um, That's just one example of like what an anti-racist society can look like. In the book, you talk about how you were abused as a child, and then you draw parallels between that experience and the experience of racism in America. You talk about being vulnerable, and it must have taken a lot of courage to talk about that time in your life. Why was it important to frame the book in that way? Honestly, I didn't even know it was going to be framed that way until after I was done writing it. Um, I was a domestic violence educator back in... 2012, and I was learning about the cycle of abuse and the power and control wheel and how abusers have tactics that they use against their victim. And it's about the power and control and being able to have that over a person and being manipulative in a way. It causes the victim to pretty much shrink, to internalize whatever is happening to them to where they think it's their fault. But then it also silences them and it creates this fear. And I see that happening a lot within the United States when it comes to racism and systems of oppression. Like there is a parallel between the power that white people hold within the United States versus the power that I don't hold as a black queer woman. You you clearly see some value in in being vulnerable and sharing that with people. What are you trying to get people to think about in their own lives? Yeah, so one of the big things with diversity talks is we want people to engage in difficult or uncomfortable conversations. And so what I was trying to model through the book is a level of vulnerability that we don't necessarily get to, whether it's with our families, our uh, co-workers. It definitely doesn't happen most times with our co-workers, but even our therapists. And so me writing that book, it was actually a heavy process that I had to go through in multiple iterations for me to be vulnerable with myself. And a lot of instances, I had to recognize that I was the problem, Um, not in terms of the abuse, but in terms of people like to pinpoint problems outside of themselves versus doing the introspection that's needed in order to find solutions and to be a part of the solution. And so me framing each chapter in a way where I'm actually reaching out to my mom, I'm reaching out to my dad, I'm reaching out to my stepfather, and I'm talking to them about how the actions that they had in the past are still impacting me today. I think that's really important when we're talking about racism because people like to say, oh, I'm not racist. How could I be racist? Racism exists over there. And if we don't start seeing ourselves within those systems, we'll never get to the root cause and we'll never find the solution. Yeah, to that point, when the words white privilege comes up, you often hear white people talk about how hard they worked in Mm -hmm. their lives, how their families weren't rich, how their ancestors faced discrimination. How do you what do you say to that? Yeah, so I go back to racism is systemic. There's a very distinct difference between prejudice and racism, and there's also a difference between the privileges that we hold or the privileges that we lack. And when we're talking about white privilege, we're talking about an unearned benefit that you're getting regardless of your socioeconomic status, and it's based solely off the color of your skin. When you throw intersectionality into it, it adds a layer, right? Because you can be white and you could be a woman and you may experience oppression because of your gender. However, that doesn't take away from the whiteness of you walking into a room and you're just given privileges because you are white. We all remember the Amanda 
Gorman poem, The Hills Recline, that she read at President Biden's mm-hmm. inauguration. What do you make of the fact that a South Florida elementary school has now banned that book? Listen, I'm not surprised. I'm from Mississippi, and so with Florida being maybe a couple of hours away, those mindsets run deep. And that's why I think the conversations are really important that we should be having. And so I'm not surprised that it is happening. I think it is an erasure of people's identities and experiences. And also, it's hard to hear the truth and to see the truth. And people don't want to do that. And one of the ways to eliminate it altogether is just to get rid of it. That controversy is part of a bigger picture, right? What do you think is going on in Florida and other parts of the country with the attempts to ban books, control curriculum, especially when it comes to matters of race, gender? I think it goes back to that power. People see that their power is threatened. And when you recognize that your power is being threatened, what are you going to do? You're going to try to hold on to it in any way possible. And I think that white people are noticing that black people and other people of color are actually stepping into their power. But that doesn't mean that we're taking yours necessarily, right? Um, I think we're looking at it from a scarcity mindset. We're actually just trying to get, like— the equal playing field that everyone else has, but we're so far behind that I actually don't think that even if people were to hand us everything that they have, that we would reach the same level as a white man in the United States. I understand that you've begun an anti-racism certification program. Yes. Tell us about that. What's the target audience? Is it companies? Yes, it is companies. So I started Diversity Talks back in 2017, and it was really around training high school students and amplifying their voices and experiences so that they could go back into their classrooms and share their knowledge. Uh, The anti-racism certification program is through my newest venture, Unscripted Consult, and it's where we're actually training adults to do similar work as the youth. They go through the certification program. They gain skills and knowledge in a range of topics from power and privilege, race, intersectionality, LGBTQ, and how to create inclusive spaces. But then they go back into their workplaces and they train the rest of their team. Like I said earlier, people have been put into chief diversity and equity officer roles, but then nothing happens after that, or they're not given the resources, or people don't have time to implement the things that they want to implement. And so this is increasing capacity within the workplace so that that their staff have the skills and the knowledge. And now you don't have any excuse about your schedule. You don't have any excuse about, oh, we don't have time to implement this thing or we don't have the capacity to because now I'm providing that space. You know, when it comes to race in America, sometimes it seems like we're taking one step forward and two steps back. In the year ahead, are we going to go forward or backwards? In the year ahead, I think we're going to go backwards. Why? Well, you have the person in Florida that's making all the bans and all the policies now saying that they're running for president. You have Trump running for president again. You have Biden running for president. Poor Biden. Um, and so <laughs> I think there's there was a lot of we saw a lot of like backtracking went once Trump was in office. Right. People were more vocal. Uh, they were more proud to be like racist. And there were a lot of people who were also harmed through those experiences. And I can see that actually happening again, because the numbers in the election said like people were favorable of Trump. And I think that they would be again. I'm actually scared for what's to come. 
And I'm happy that organizations like Diversity Talks and other organizations doing this type of work like the Equity Institute are on the front lines, but it's not enough of us. And I think that's one of the reasons why we are training youth to then train their teachers and their administrators. That's why I'm creating an anti-racism certification program is because people of color shouldn't be carrying this weight. Right. We, we really need white people to step into their own and take ownership for the actions that and the things that are happening within the United States so that they could be on the front lines and we can actually take a break and, and trust that white people have it and are able to solve it. Yeah. If someone is listening and they want to do something in their own lives to prevent what you're talking about, a rise in hatred and white supremacism, what can they do? Vote and not the way that your family always voted not the way that you've always voted. Actually look into the policies that people are proposing and the laws that the candidates are proposing and seeing like just because it's not harming you, is it harming someone else? And if it is, you probably need to make another decision on who you're voting for. I think it's very easy to accept things when, again, we're separating ourselves from it or when we're not being impacted from it. But think about the ways that it is impacting someone else and then change the way that you are deciding, calling your local um, legislators, going to protest when things happen, actually showing up because we're stronger in numbers and we're stronger as a collective. And I think it's really easy to say like, oh, well, someone else got it. I'm going to stay at home. I'm not going to that protest. And then no one goes. That's what I took from your book is you're asking people to put themselves in other people's shoes to be empathetic, right? Mm -hmm. What do you say to people in that regard if, if they're, oh, I don't know, if it's not my problem? Yeah, I think it is your problem. It's everybody's problem. Um, David Johns, one of my good friends, he all says like, none of us are free until we're all free. Um, he always says it. He closes out every panel that I'm ever on with him. That's a very big statement to think about. It's like, is the LGBTQ community free? No. Are Black people free? No. I think in the Black community in particular, being queer is so taboo, especially in the South. And so I'm often confronted with people saying like, well, the gay community, they're getting a leg up on us when it comes to racism or discrimination. And I'm like, but what about me, the person that's in the intersect of being black and being queer? How am I getting a leg up? I'm just like double oppressed. And so we have to think about the intersectionality that's at play as well. What keeps you motivated in this work? It seems it can be difficult at times. Yeah, I think because I appreciate my piece, believe it or not, even though I'm a talk show host and I wrote a book and I started a company, I am an introvert at heart. I like to joke around and tell people like, I don't like humans. You can cancel all the plans and I'll be fine on my couch staying <laughs> at home. And so I... I value my peace. I meditate. Um, I completely unplug when I need to. Something that we've implemented since the beginning of time, since I've started working at Diversity Talks, is an unrestricted workday and an unlimited vacation day policy because I know it was very important for my staff to be able to unplug. And so we can work from anywhere, anytime, take as many days as you need. I don't care if it's mental health. I don't care if it's sick. I don't care what it is. I want you to take care of yourself so that when you are working, you're showing up as your best self. Kira Butler, thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. 
Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.